This podcast is brought to you by Free Buddhist Audio, the Dharma for your life. Our work is funded entirely by donations from our generous listeners. If you would like to help us keep this free, make a contribution at freebuddhistaudio.com forward slash donate. Thank you and happy listening. Okay, so this is the last of the series of talks on Challenging Dharma for Challenging Times. So, if it was four weeks ago, started by introducing the theme, looking at some of the challenges that face us in the world at present and uh, face us in our practice of the Dharma too. And then we've gone through the Four Noble Truths. So we looked at the, the Noble Truth of Dukkha, which is to be understood. Uh, the Noble Truth of Tanha, which is to be abandoned, uh, the Noble Truth of Nibbana, which is to be realised, and then tonight we're going to look at the, the Noble Truth of the Path, which is to be developed. Um, traditionally, this is talked about as the Noble Eightfold Path, uh, but I'm not going to, I'm going to go off-piste tonight, I'm not going to follow that particular format for number of reasons. One, I wouldn't be able to do justice to eight limbs of the path in one evening. Secondly, if you're interested in that topic, uh, Sangha Aksha's, uh, has already done a pretty good job in his book, uh, The Buddha's Eightfold Path. He's gone into it in quite a bit of depth, so if you're interested in the Eightfold Path, I'd strongly recommend that. But more importantly, I'm I want to look at something that relates right back to uh, the first talk. So in the first talk I talked about two of the main challenges I think facing us in the world are a strong emphasis on individualism and materialism and the combination of those two which basically gives us the kind of capitalist society that we've got these days. Yeah. Uh, so I'm going to explore the path in terms of the Sangha, uh, as a way of kind of challenging this individualism. Yeah, so that's why I'm choosing to explore what the nature of the Sangha is, and the Sangha as a practice and as a path, because I think it most strongly uh, well, yeah, works against that tendency to individualism in, in our society. Yeah. So I'm going to do it by looking at, uh, to start with, by looking at some of Sangha Rakshita's teachings on the Sangha. Uh, then I'm going to look a little bit at some of the benefits of the Sangha uh, and, and a little bit about the practice of Sangha and then I'm going to talk a little bit about my own experience as well. Yeah. But as, as usual with these things, um, Sangha actually has a, a lot to say about what the nature of Sangha is. Often the Sangha, if you come across discussion or description of the Sangha in a lot of Buddhist books, what they'll talk about talk about it in fairly um, simple terms of just uh, kind of like clerical status, you know, the, the difference between the laity and the monks, that's the traditional distinction, the way of talking about um, the Sangha in the East. And it's kind of quite external and quite superficial. Uh, so Sangha Akshita looks much more deeply into what are the kind of levels or, or kinds of consciousness associated uh, where he talks about three orders of consciousness yeah? so he's talking about a sangha in terms of the kind of consciousness associated with each of these 
orders or levels, which I think goes much more deeply into what the true nature of Sangha is, rather than just seeing it in terms of this you know, external description of uh, whether you're a monk or in some countries a nun and, or, or the laity. Yeah? Uh, so he talks about these three orders of consciousness. Um, and he comes up with this, this term, the third order of consciousness, which I find quite mysterious, and we'll come to that in a, in a, in a minute. For it, so in this analysis, he talks about the first kind of consciousness you can have is uh, group consciousness. Yeah? So this is where uh, the individual is purely part of the group that they belong to. So all their... Uh, kind of values, their ideas, their thoughts, their emotions are tied up with the particular group or groups that they've been involved with or are identified with. Yeah? So, and, and the group itself, the purpose of the group, you know, this in a way goes back to evolution and biology, the purpose of the group is to preserve the group and um, make sure it carries on into the future. Yeah? So that's, that's its purpose. It's not there to benefit specifically the individual. The individual just fulfills the needs of the group in some way. Um, so uh, groups in this way can be anything. I mean, the obvious immediate starting point for all of us is the, the family. The family is the primary group that we're born into and conditioned by and experience uh, and are shaped and formed by in some way or another. But groups can also be, um, well, they can be ethnic groups, they can be national groups, they can be groups around, uh, you know, pastimes, you know, what football team you support, whatever it might be. And you, you sort of uh, take up the values of that group, or you're shaped and informed by the values of that group. Um, now, one of the things about those groups is, uh, at least, you know, defined like this, is that they don't, uh, they don't seek to promote the individual kind of developing beyond the constraints of that particular group. You'll know this from your own family, probably. If you try and go against the grain and step outside of your family group, there can quite often be resistance to that from the other members of the family. Uh, it's threatening to them. If you do something whereby you kind of um, challenge or step outside, that, that can be difficult for others and, and they will do, sometimes people will do what they can to obstruct you uh, making that change or making that break. It's not always totally clear cut, but that's the sort of the nature of, of groups in that way. Um, you, Sangarash also talks about this. Well, sometimes you get... Um, he. he you have this sort of group concept, and then you can get someone called the individualist. So the individualist is someone who has, they've kind of freed themselves from the views and the attitudes of the group, whether it's the family or whether it's, uh, the, you know, I don't know, the school group or the, the racial group that they're part of or the national group. They, they've sort of been able to free themselves individually. They can see that those values are quite limited and limiting in a certain sort of way. But they haven't necessarily managed to free themselves emotionally or psychologically. So you get what's called the individualist. And the individualist is still, they're kind of like a group of one, so they, they define themselves as the opposite of 
the group, whether that's the family or any of these other kinds of groups. They'll take an opposite point of the values. But in some way, they're still in a kind of codependent emotional relationship or psychological relationship with that group. They're not truly sort of free from it. Um, so, yes, you, 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 uh, we're going to go on to look at what Sanger actually calls true individuality, and it's not this individualism itself or the, the individualist's approach. Yeah? The individualist is still emotionally dependent, even if they've got a kind of an awareness and a critique and a perspective on, on the groups that they've been part of. There's also what Sanger actually calls, there's, uh, there's a kind of transitional thing. There's a, what he calls the positive group. So a positive group is one where it's characterised by more obvious emotional positivity, but it's also encouraging the spiritual growth and development of those people within it. So it's not trying to stop people from growing. It's not restricting them, trying to keep them within the bounds of the particular values and perspectives of the group. Yeah? So it's a positive group that actually supports the development of people. In a way, this is what we're trying to do here a lot of the time. Um, we're trying to create an emotionally positive atmosphere which supports people to, in a way, discover more about themselves and become what we're going to look at as the, as the true individual. Yeah? It's a very brief look at quite a big topic. I'm just sort of laying it, laying it out like that. So these are just ordinary groups. Groups, you know, so they can be, some of them can be fairly benign and, uh, you know, some of them can be, uh, well, in a way, seriously unskillful. You know, the nationalist groups, say, of the 1930s or whatever it is, uh, or, you know, groups uh, formed around racism or whatever, they, they, they're actually pretty nasty and negative, the sort of emotions and attitudes of some groups towards people who are not in the group that they're part of. Yeah? So there's a whole range of things within that. We haven't got time to go into it in a lot of depth. So that's the first order of consciousness. Now that's what, you know, we're, we're all sort of born into it. That's what we experience first, is just absorbing and identifying with the groups that we're in and being a part of those groups. Uh, taking up the roles that were assigned within those groups. The next order of consciousness is what's called individual consciousness. So this is more than just the individualist who's just taking a position, you know, in opposition to the group. A true individual, or someone embodying a really, uh, yeah, a true individual level of consciousness, is someone who's they freed themselves from the group conditioning. So they're self-aware, they're aware of the kind of conditioning forces that have shaped them. Uh, they've, they've got a sort of a self-reflective awareness about all that, which has enabled them to free themselves from that conditioning and choose to be something else. So they have this sense of um, a freedom because of their self-awareness. They're also not emotionally or psychologically dependent on others for their identity and for their well-being. So this is what, one of the main things that distinguishes them from the individualist. Uh, they're not just kind of uh, free of a group in terms of it, you know, an intellectual or, uh, perspective or through self-awareness. They're actually emotionally independent. They don't need the affirmation uh, of others to maintain a sense of their self and their well-being. Yeah? Um, you know, often we're so sort of dependent on the... Uh, of affirmation and approval of others and if, if uh, you know this is how groups work it's just like if you 
if you fit in, you get that affirmation and that approval. If you don't, it's withdrawn. And that's the pressure that, tries, that keeps you involved in the groups. Yeah? So to be actually able to stand outside of it, you need to be emotionally positive within yourself. You know, not seeking emotional positivity from, uh, or, or, or even affirmation from, from those places. You've got that welling up within yourself. That gives you a sense of freedom, sense of yeah, emotional and psychological independence. Um, Saint Rasha talks about the true individual as someone who's prepared to be alone and prepared to be unpopular. Not that they seek that out, but you know they they would be that rather than just be subsumed back into a kind of group level of consciousness. Yeah, they're emotionally positive and they have a free flow of kind of spontaneous creative energy as they're not caught up with all the needs of the group and, and for approval and all the things around them. There's a much more liberated flow of energy that can, can go into creative pursuits and spiritual development, spiritual unfoldment. Yeah? So this, this is one way of looking at um, spiritual life. We're trying to develop more of a sense of this true individuality, thinking for ourselves, becoming emotionally independent, um, or you know, emotionally resourceful doesn't mean that we don't have positive relations with others. We're going to go on to look at that in the next stage. But uh, yeah, we, we become more self-aware, uh, more creative, uh, more free flow of energy. Yeah? And then the third order of consciousness, the mysterious third order of consciousness, uh, phrase of Sangharakshita's, uh, this is what happens when true individuals come into relationship with other true individuals. Yeah? So it's not so if, if you've developed all those qualities associated with true individuality, uh, when you associate with others, you don't devolve, as it were, back to just an ordinary group level of awareness. Something else comes into being, and this is the third order of consciousness. Uh, so it, 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 it's kind of collective, but not, uh, you know, not going backwards. It's, it's an evolution to the some, something else. When truly individual people come together and start cooperating and, and entering into free relationship with each other, a whole new level of consciousness emerges. Yeah? And this, it's this third order of consciousness, which I'm, is the true meaning of Sangha, this is what Sangha really is. It's not just you know, whether you're a monk or a nun or a lay person. It's about the level of consciousness that you experience when you're in relationship with others. So it's actually it's interesting that there isn't... I mean, Sangha actually uses this term, the third order of consciousness, because there's no clear word in the English language to denote the kind of thing that he's talking about which is very interesting in itself. We don't have a word to describe what this is, or at least one single word. He's pointed to a word that comes from the Russian tradition called Sorbanost. Oh, well done. <laughs> oh, yeah, I was just going to say, did I get my Russian pronunciation right? Thank you. Uh, Sorbanost comes from, um, well, it's a Russian word, but it's been... Uh, uh, its meaning's kind of been articulated by Russian Orthodox, Christian Orthodox thinkers in Russia. Um, 
And they talk about it's the spiritual community of many jointly living people. But it's, um, it's, it's what happens when people come together and live the higher life together. It's sometimes talked about as a kind of collegiality. Uh, it's when people freely associate with other individuals and something else emerges that's not just individual and it's not the level of the group it's, it's something else so it's, it's, it's a bit mysterious what it is you know? um, I'm going to give three images from or sort of stories, images, symbols from the tradition to sort of evoke a little bit of what this might be this, this third order of consciousness some of you will know these. So the first one is the, that goes back right to the early tradition is the story of the Anarudas. So there are three monks that uh, are living together in the park which the Buddha goes to visit. And I'll, I'll just read you um, a little bit of the dialogue that the Buddha has with uh, these, these folk. It's quite a famous story. So the Buddha says, I hope, Anaruda, that you are living in concord with mutual appreciation without disputing, blending like milk and water, viewing each other with kindly eyes. And the response is, Surely, Venerable Sir, we are living in concord, with mutual appreciation, without disputing, blending like milk and water, viewing each other with kindly eyes. And then the Buddha asks, But Anuruddha, how do you live like this? And the, and the response is, Venerable Sir, as to that, I think thus. It is a gain for me, it is a great gain for me that I am living with such companions in the holy life. I maintain bodily acts of loving kindness towards those venerable ones, both openly and privately. I maintain verbal acts of loving kindness towards them both openly and privately. I maintain mental acts of loving-kindness towards them, both openly and privately. I consider, why should I not set aside what I wish to do and do what these venerable ones wish to do? Then I set aside what I wish to do and do what these venerable ones wish to do. We are different in body, venerable sir, but one in mind. Yeah? So it's a very, very beautiful description of these three guys living uh, together, looking upon each other, uh, speaking to each other with, uh, in, with loving kindness, <coughs> both inwardly and outwardly, so there's no distinction between what they're thinking and what they're doing. Uh, and this thing of, well, why shouldn't I set aside what I want to do for their benefit? And they just go about doing that. So they've completely abandoned the whole notion of living for selfish ends. Yeah? This is a very, very profound state that's being evoked. And then they say, yes, we are different in body, venerable sir, but one in mind. You know, it's like on a level of mind where it kind of like mutual relationship is much easier to do. You can't manage that on the physical level, they're separate in body, but in mind they are so close to each other and so understanding of what the needs are of each and other person and willing to put themselves aside to do what the others want. So, and so they're living like, you know, in, in complete harmony, like milk and water, just completely blended. Yeah? But they're not 
they've not sort of regressed back to a brute level of consciousness. This is some higher level of consciousness where the self has been gone beyond and they live completely in harmony with each other. So this is something of this third order of consciousness. Yeah? It's a little story from the Buddha's times. There's also, uh, I mentioned last week, uh, the, this symbol of the pure land in Buddhism. Uh, it's, it's a very elaborate uh, symbolism and I gave a, a brief kind of evocation of it. The, the pure land in Buddhism is basically the, the, the symbol of the, the Sangha at its uh, highest, at its best. Sangha actually talks about the pure land. The pure land is a, is a realm that's absolutely ideal and perfect for spiritual unfoldment and practice. There's nothing that hinders it in any way whatsoever. It's described in very beautiful, visionary, you know, sensuous terms as well. Uh, and you know, the birds sing the Dharma, the sound of the rivers communicates in permanence. It's just this realm where, instead of the realm, the Saha realm, the realm of woe and suffering that we live in, it's a whole realm where the, uh, it's just uh, blessedly easy to realise one's spiritual potential. So it's a, it's a realm where it's just the Sangha, just everybody there is uh, trying to unfold and grow spiritually. Yeah? It's, this, it's the ideal symbol of the Sangha. So that's the second sort of image. There's the Anarudas, there's the Pure Land. And then there's this uh, image that I read from uh, before the meditation. I read this little story of comes from the opening of the Vimla Kirti Nidesha and the Buddha's just about to start teaching and these, uh, the Bodhisattva Ratnakara comes out to the, the park, Andhapali's park outside of Vaishali and he comes with 500 Lichavi youths and they offer, uh, they all bring this be- these beautiful parasols. Parasols, apparently in the east, they have a different purpose to us. They're not just to keep the rain off, they're to keep the sun off. But they have this whole connotation with royalty. You know, you imagine royalty sitting out in the, the heat and the sun and they have beautiful parasols above them. So the, the, the symbolism is slightly different from just our little bit that we're sheltering under to keep the rain off. And they all, the, the parasols are made of these seven precious substances. They're beautiful objects in themselves. And they offer the 500 parasols to the Buddha. And then the Buddha performs this magical act, however he does it. And he transforms them into one parasol that covers the whole of the, well, as far as you can see above you, and the whole hundred billion world cosmos is reflected in this one parasol. It's one of the great sort of cosmic phantasmagoria that you get in the Mahayana. Beautiful image. And I'm I'm just going to read you, so Sangharakshita thinks... uh, He's got, he's got an interpretation of this, which I think is very interesting. Um, so he says, The 500 parasols born aloft, so brilliant and so colourful, surely represent the spiritual aspirations of those 500 Lichavi youths. In particular, their urge or will towards supreme perfect enlightenment for the benefit of all beings. So it represents their highest aspirations for gaining enlightenment for the benefit of all. In other words, the parasols represent the arisen bodhicitta. There are 500 yous and therefore 500 parasols, 
So you might imagine that there would be 500 bodhicittas. But the fact that the parasols are all offered to the Buddha shows us that the spiritual aspirations of the youths all have one and the same object. Supreme perfect enlightenment as represented by the Buddha himself as he sits there. This shared aspiration acts as a unifying force. It means that their aspirations tend to converge, even to unite, to become one single aspiration. This is why the Buddha transforms the parasols into a single canopy. And then he goes on to say, but what is that one single aspiration? What does the great canopy represent? He says, as long as we take it poetically rather than dogmatically, we can think of it as representing what may be called the cosmic bodhicitta. And just as the entire billion world galaxy is reflected in the canopy, the cosmic bodhicitta is aware of and responsive to the needs of all sentient beings. It is not collective. At the same time, it is not individual in the ordinary sense. It belongs to a mysterious category for which we have as yet no word, a category which also includes the expression spiritual community. Yeah, so again, he's, he's using this symbol of the, the 500 parasols transformed into this one great cosmic vision of the sky reflecting that 100 billion worlds of the cosmos. Uh, he's saying that's the bodhicitta, that's this supreme aspiration the highest aspiration that a human being can have or has ever been imagined for a human being that's that's what I think anyway Uh, but it's 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 one it's those 500 become one but it's not become lesser again it's not a a regression back to a kind of a sub-individual group consciousness it's the transformation of it into something vast uh, and, and cosmic you know this is the where the Mahayana, you, you have to kind of go along with its imagery. It just it takes us beyond ourselves in some way. So the bodhicitta that he's talking about, bodhicitta is this aspiration, uh, well, it's talked about as an aspiration to uh, save all sentient beings from suffering. And it can be the force that also has arisen in one that allows one to respond to the world in that way as well, yeah? So this is something of what the third order of consciousness is. This is what Sangha is at its highest. It's a kind of a, a, a collective force for the liberation of all beings from suffering. Yeah? That's the true meaning of Sangha. It's way, way, way beyond just ideas of whether you're, you know, like I say, a lay person or a monastic it's a, you know, Sangha actually is defining what Sangha is in a much, much deeper level, I think. So that, and, it, and it's participation in that that helps us to go beyond our individualism. You know, just thinking about freeing myself from suffering or even not thinking about seeing myself, just pursuing a life that's kind of um, based on selfish ends in some sort of way. It's this participation in something of the cosmic bodhicitta, this thing can raise us way beyond ourselves. Uh, that's what I think, that's why the Sangha is so important in challenging the, the individualism that we're, well, that's so sort of rife in the society around us.
So, uh, coming down from the heights of this great cosmic vision of uh, a billion world galaxies in the canopy above, um, it's going to talk a little bit about some of the benefits of Sangha and, and then what the practice of Sangha might actually mean. Uh, maybe we can draw some more of this out in, in questions at the end. So, uh, yeah, participating in Sangha, this is sort of coming down from the, the great lofty vision level to uh, what, what might be the benefits for us. So, I think uh, participating in Sangha can give us a much greater sense of confidence in faith in what we're doing in our own practice and a greater sense of confidence in face that this isn't just me doing my thing, this is something that other people do and respond to as well. Uh, it helps us to overcome a sense of isolation, that we're actually, we can be understood by others for these kind of deepest aspirations that, you know, they might be a bit unformed, a bit inchoate in our experience. There's something we, we sort of feel dimly or, or are only just becoming consciousness. Conscious. Being part of the Sangha helps all of that, helps us to believe those aspirations, believe that that is what human life is really for, uh, and gives us greater confidence in it. And then it can give us greater confidence in our practice. You know, there's the benefits of Sangha, just being with others, practicing, makes it much easier for us to practice. Often we're not integrated enough to sustain a practice on our own. We might like to think we are, we can do it all on our own, but the reality is often we can't. So it gives us support for practice as well. Um, the whole thing about being in the Sangha too is it, it weakens the sort of bonds of self-interest. Participating in a community uh, can just yeah, start to overcome those, those tighter bonds of individualism, of, of selfishness, of self-pursuit. Yeah? It's also one of the great benefits of Sangha is, well, if you are trying to do something to respond to the suffering in the world, if you have a sensitivity to your own suffering and the suffering of other beings, which I think it is actually natural, it's a fairly uh, basic human kind of faculty to feel that sensitivity to others' suffering, you can't do much about it on your own. You really can't. The world, the scale of the world that we uh, are in, the numbers of people, the forces at work, if you're going to try and respond to the sufferings on your own, it's going to be very difficult. You're not going to achieve an awful lot. And the danger is that it becomes very burdensome. You know, it's like there's this, all this suffering and there's just you trying to respond to it from your own, you know, if you're just responding to it from your own kind of ego resources it can become burdensome and, and overbearing. Yeah? So participating in Sangha and working with others for that uh, liberation of all beings, grand as the aim is, you know, it's still a very noble and worthy aim. To do it with others means you're much more likely to have effect, to have some kind of success, and you're not going to experience um, a burden of sort of doing it all on your own, which can be a kind of isolating thing in its own right. Yeah? Uh, so those are just some benefits of Sangha that I can think of, you know, that particularly relate to sort of working against the, the sort of individualism. Um, 
And I've just got a few thoughts about how we practice Sangha. Uh, the very obvious ones with Sangha, well, we have to put the time in. We actually have to make time for uh, Sangha activities, for coming together with others. You know, it doesn't happen on its own, of its own accord. Uh, but maybe we sometimes we need to think of you know, what we can give to the Sangha, not what we can get from it. I think this is another way of turning around this individualism, this selfish approach to life. You know, instead of thinking, oh, I'm, I'm, I'm not going to come to the Buddhist centre because you know, I, I don't know that I'll get anything from it tonight. I'd probably be better off just having the night at home, something like that. Well, actually, just see what it would be like to think, I'll come for others. It makes a difference. You know, if none of you had come tonight, I'd just be sitting here talking. It only ha- you know, it's, it's such a, an obvious thing to say, but it's, it, you know, we need to let that sink in. Uh, sangha only happens when we go out beyond ourselves and, you know, give a bit. Think of what you can give, not, not what you can get. Uh, and that whole attitude of just not, not thinking purely for yourself, developing something of an altruistic attitude. You know, this is one of the great teachings of the Mahayana, is that to go beyond the self, it's not just a matter of doing your meditation and practicing reflections on not-self. It's actually developing a, a whole attitude of life that takes you beyond self-concern into concern for others. Yeah? Altruism. Compassion. Uh, one of the other things about practice of Sangha um, is that it does challenge us as well. Uh, being with other people in the Sangha, uh, they're not all going to be people that you like. It's guaranteed. Uh, so the Sangha is not just surrounding yourself with people that you, you naturally want to spend time with. It's about being with people from very different kind of backgrounds, very different temperaments, different psychologies. Uh, people who press our buttons. People we, you know, actually find it pretty difficult to like, yeah? So if you're committed to being in a Sangha, you have to start working through a lot of those reactions. A lot of that tendency towards dislike or, you know, wanting to pull back from people who, who press your buttons, yeah? That's a fantastic working ground. If you can work to transform your reactions when your buttons get pushed by others, uh, you will be making genuine and real spiritual progress. So those, again, that's just the brief thoughts about how we can practice saying. I'll just finish with a few reflections of my own on... uh, yeah, my own kind of participation in Sangha. Um, it's kind of been most of my adult life. Um, so one of the first things that uh, was, a, in, a, in a way, it was a great benefit for me. So I did gain something for myself. Was uh, I learned to trust others in the Sangha? So I, I, I mean, this goes back. I, I've mentioned, I think, in previous talks. There was, uh, there was violence in my childhood and, and the sort of that ability to trust others was very strongly avec- affected by that violence. So for me, that's been, that was quite a big issue. and uh, Well, a very big issue. Coming in contact with the Sangha, I feel incredibly fortunate that I met people 
who I could begin to trust. You know, there was a fairly fundamental mistrust of others that I had as a result of those experiences. Um, oh yeah, and I, I basically met just, I've, I've met an, an awful lot of kindness, honesty, concern for my well-being, which has allowed me to trust. I don't, you know, I, I'm not saying the saying is perfect and always completely trustworthy. You know, some, sometimes the, the saying is not doesn't always live up to its billing. We're human beings and we don't always act for the best, but I've been very fortunate. I've met some people who I can trust very, very deeply and who I know will respond to me with my best interests at heart. I know there are a number of people in the order who I could go to at any time and they will... Oh, I absolutely know that they will respond to me with my best interests at heart. Uh, and that's quite a remarkable thing to be able to know that about others. You know, they'll be able to see, see and understand me clearly, and respond to me not out of what's good for them, but out of what's good for me. Yeah. So I've I've learned that that's been a great benefit of participating in sangha for me. Then uh, I'll just give an image myself of those three images of the Anarudas and the Pure Land and uh, the great parasol. Cosmic Parasol from the Vimalakirti Nidesha. When I was um, on my ordination course out at Guhiloka in 1992, uh, I was actually having a very difficult time. I was, I was basically having a breakdown and I had to leave the retreat early. But whilst I was there, I, I, my dream life was uh, very alive. And I had one very, very striking dream. Uh, quite a simple dream. I was just wandering around this light-filled kind of gathering of people uh, and there was this absolutely glorious choral music being sung. Um, kind of music that I've, I've never heard music like it in any other way. Since when I woke up I had it in mind what piece of music it was and, uh, but in a way it wasn't that at all. It was like I heard, you know, they talk about choirs of angels or whatever. That's what I heard in that dream. It was completely uplifting. It was being sung by all these people. And I was wandering through this gathering of people with just tears of kind of uh, joy, of relief, of just being so moved by the beauty of it. Uh, and in a way, that's, that was a symbol for, again, when I woke up, it, it felt like I was at an order convention, convention of the Trinidad Buddhist order. That's what I had in mind. It was on some completely different, exalted, archetypal level. But then, this is one of those ones where dream became life, because uh, that was in 1992, I, I had to leave, I didn't get ordained until 1994, and I went on my first order convention in 1995, this place called Wyndham College in Norfolk. Um, and I was in the Shrine Room. The Shrine Room's a converted sports hall uh, that's been turned into a, a, a fantastic, spacious Buddhist Shrine Room where several hundred people or more can, can be together. And we were there one evening, and a friend of mine, Vipula Kirti, stood up and introduced this three part harmonised mantra, Tara Mantra and got people just learning the parts and singing it. And then we sat down and we sang this three-part harmonised Tara Mantra. 
And it was a bit like I was back in that dream. It was uh, it's the closest I've come to. There we were, was with two or three hundred other order members singing the praises of Tara, the great Bodhisattva of compassion, in this glorious harmony, just completely uplifted by it. It was you know, a fantastic experience to be a part of. And the way that's, uh, you know, so those two images, the dream image and then actually being at Wyndham College there, they're kind of symbols for that something higher emerging amongst the collective of people. I also had the experience, I went to the first uh, Tree Ratna Buddhist Order convention at Bogaya in India in 2009. So they started to have, you know, there's a large part of the order, Tree Ratna Buddhist Order lives in India now. Um, and we went to Bogaya where the Buddha gained enlightenment. Several hundred of us again. And in the mornings we would get up at dawn and we would walk through the streets of Bogaya in silence, all dressed in our blue uh, Dhammachari, Dhammachari shirts with our cases and processing down in the sort of atmospheric uh, warmth of the Indian morning with the sun just beginning to arise. And we'd go down into the temple at Bogaya and sit right beneath the Bodhi tree, supposedly a, an offshoot of the tree that, you know, or a, a sapling from the tree that the, the Buddha sat under. And we would do prostration practice, so it's a visualisation uh, practice of Buddhas and Bodhisattvas, and, and then you physically prostrate whilst reciting various things beneath the tree to the Buddha. And uh, I just found it completely wonderful. Since I was sitting next to these Indian women uh, Dharmacharanis, ordained members of the Tree Ratna Buddhist Order, who I'd, I'd never met before. I might never meet again. I didn't know their names. And we were sharing this most wonderful and profound thing at the seat of the Buddha's enlightenment that I could ever experience. Uh, and there was something about this coming together with people from a completely different background. These are Indian women from very poor backgrounds in India. And they were there, you know, doing exactly the same as me, prostrating towards the tree, sharing this great devotion and this aspiration for something higher. And it, it, it was just a kind of a coming together. You know, they weren't, I was, I'm talking about the Indian women, there were all sorts of, you know, Westerns, people from Australia and from Mexicans there, people from Northern Europe, English people, a whole range. But it was just something about us participating in something way beyond just something for myself or just an ordinary group kind of level of, of awareness. Felt something something much bigger than that. And that in a way that yeah my last reflection is just uh, being a part of the Tree Ratna Buddhist order. Uh, it's a wonderful thing to feel a part of a collectivity of people that I know are doing things all around the world, running Buddhist centres, working for the Dharma in different ways, or working in other situations, vocational settings, all around the world. They're doing something that I know is exactly what I'm trying to do. They might be doing it quite differently from me, because they're a different character, a different person to me. They've got different skills and abilities to those that I've got. They're in a different kind of context to the one that I'm in. But I know in my heart that I'm not alone. 
And I know that very, very deeply. Uh, that is a very, very great relief. Yeah, because when I look at the state the world is in, there is an awful lot of suffering out there. It would be very, very easy to be overwhelmed by that suffering if I was just responding to it on my own. But I know, I know that there are others deep in myself. I know that. That knowledge can't be taken away from me. That is a, is a really, really wonderful thing. Uh, yeah, I'd really like to invite you to participate in that, whether you seek to join the Tree Ratna Buddhist Order or not. Try to find that experience. It is one of the, uh, I think, most meaningful and significant experiences that someone can have in life. To feel that you are not alone and you're dedicated to this highest pursuit that human beings can be dedicated to. Yeah. It's a really, really wonderful thing. So, that's, that's the end of the five talks. We've got about ten minutes or so, so... I'm happy to try and see if there's any comments or questions. It's going to be a bit of shock actually towards the end of that. It feels like you just dropped the mic and walked out of the room. But it's hard to actually respond to that. Um, no, we can just sit and silently. We don't have to. But the, the one thing that I'm thinking of is that you conjured up, uh, you really conjured up sort of that cosmic, that, um, that great myth that we can all respond to. Um, in a sangha, like I say, for example, a lot of people sangha here, how can we keep tapping into that myth, do you think? How can we keep keep that alive? Um, what can we do to keep that, that? In a way, it's all the obvious things, isn't it? We need to, both individually and collectively, we need to be more ethical, we need to become more aware, we need to develop more emotional positivity, we need to study the Dharma more, we need to come together as a Sangha. The more time we can spend together in whatever ways, not just at classes, you know, socially, but also working together on projects, doing things together, it sort of comes out of that. Yeah, you can't conjure it out of nothing. It's, you know, we, we have to make that effort. I, I think there are severe limits to what you can do online. I know quite a few people end up trying to get their contact with Sangha through, you know, if you're a long way away from a Sangha and that's all you can do, fair enough, but I think there are very definite limits to what you can do with that. It actually has to be with others, physically. Um, I suppose it's, uh, it's, it's upholding and. Uh, I mean, if, to be honest, it's a relief for me to be able to say all this stuff. <laughs> I, don't, I don't know, do, do, do people hear this kind of stuff in the world? Do you, where, do you, uh, I, I mean, when I've heard people articulate the Dharma, Sabuti used to do it for me, I'd be at talks of Padmavadram. 
it was just such a relief to hear somebody saying kind of what the purpose and vision of human life is and what we can be and so there's something about that I think we just need to get that message out and across much more there are, in some ways you look at the, the culture around it's, it's a spiritual desert a lot of it yeah. it really is and a lot of it's worse it's not just a desert it's actually you know against actively against spiritual values unfortunately so yeah we, we've got to be a kind of a beacon of light we've got to uphold that, bear that more and but that you know that's that's gotta come out of individual deepening of Dharma practice as well. You know, you don't you don't bypass, you don't get from the group to the third order of consciousness without doing the true individual bit, you know, so there's that you do have to do that work individually and you know, you do the bit of participating in the Sangha too. We hope you enjoyed this week's podcast. Please help us keep this free. Make a contribution at freebuddhistaudio.com forward slash donate. And thank you 